Morning, church. With a full full band, I have to share the, the podium and move stuff around so I can get the Bible out here. It's good to be with you this morning. Nice to see all of you, smiling faces. Um, turn to the book of Habakkuk this morning. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to get them on out. Open them up to Habakkuk chapter 3. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we believe in your spirit. We believe in your spirit. We believe in your spirit. You teaches us from the word that we dive into today and every day that we read. Lord, we pray that your spirit would move in our hearts and in our minds. That we would be transformed by his power and his might. Father God, we thank you that you are good. We thank you that you are mighty. And we thank you for your son, Jesus. Who freely died on the cross, shed his blood so that we might be reconciled to you. It's in his precious name that we pray. Amen. Like I said, turn to Habakkuk chapter chapter 3, excuse me, this morning. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shiganoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Perrin, Selah. His splendor covered the heavens. The earth was full of His praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from His hand and there He veiled His power. Before Him went pestilence and plague followed at His heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. The eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushion in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers? Or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. Selah. The earth split. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice, lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped. 
At the flash of your glittering spear, you march through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for salvation of your people. For the salvation of your anointed, you crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Selah. You pierced his own. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the oil fail, the yield, the fields yield no food, the flocks be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high on my high places. To the choir master with stringed instruments. Father, again, we turn to you with hopeful anticipation of your Spirit speaking to our hearts. As we dig into these words, we pray that our hearts would be softened, our minds would be humbled at the presence of your magnificence. It is in and through Jesus' name we pray. Amen. First things first. I'm excited about today's passage. Habakkuk up until this point has been challenging to say probably the least. It's a difficult message, but a message that we need to hear nonetheless. There are three parts to Habakkuk. I've mentioned them as we've gone through here. Um, but I'll mention them again. First we see there's, there's actually four places where the, the author uses narrative as opposed to poetry, and this is how we kind of move through the different parts. The first is in chapter 1, verse 1, the oracle of Habakkuk the prophet. That Habakkuk the prophet, Saul. And then we have this, this give and take between Habakkuk and God. How long shall I cry for help? How long are you going to let wickedness seem to rule? How long are you going to allow 
the righteous to be to be brought down by those who are less righteous than they, than they. And then chapter six or chapter two, verse six. Excuse me. We have another bit of narrative that shifts us from this conversation between God and man, or between God and Habakkuk and the woes. It says, shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, woe is me, woe to him. And then now in chapter three, verse one, the prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet according to the Shigayanoth. Shigayanoth. This is an interesting little notation here, and we see that it's it's capped off at the end in verse 19 with to the choir master with stringed instruments. And this kind of connects this uh, song, or this, this takes this prayer that Habakkuk is praying here, and it makes it a a psalm, one that very easily could be found in the book of Psalms. It's not, but it's found here instead. It is likely, like we talked about in the past, that Habakkuk was a vocational prophet, probably in the temple. And this is perhaps his contribution to the worship in the temple. The Shigayanoth is only mentioned one other time throughout all 150 psalms. And it is... It is a, a dirge, which is interesting to me. It's a lament, but it's something a little bit different. A lament psalm starts with the complaint or starts with the problem. And as it works through the, the verses of the psalm, or the lines of the psalm, it gets to a point where it leaves the problem, recognizes God's hand at work, and ends in praise Every single time. This is a little bit different. It is still a lament. We recognize that what Habakkuk's attitude has been since verse 2 of chapter 1, O oh Lord, how long shall I cry for, for help? is the same attitude he has to start this prayer. That's very much lament language. But the difference between this lament and almost every other lament is that it's immediate that we start to see Habakkuk's trust and praise of God. But at the same time, through the whole thing, we recognize that Habakkuk has not forgotten the problem. He has just shifted his attention away from the problem to the God who is the answer. And so he divides his prayer in roughly three parts. Two through eight is what is called a theophany. Nine through fifteen is God coming to earth. And sixteen through nineteen is Habakkuk's and hopefully our response. we look at verses 2 through 8, and we see this theophany. A theophany is when God takes what man uses in the theological or the cognitive, and he makes it a reality. The burning bush is a theophany, where God presents himself in a 
relatively common way of describing God as fire. God is not literally fire, but we call him fire because fire purges, fire is destructive, fire is powerful, and we recognize that God is all of those descriptors, and so we call him fire, the refiner's fire, right? So when Moses encounters the burning bush, he is encountering God saying, okay, you have called me fire, now I'm going to show myself as fire. Wes, last week, he talked about he talked about kings, he talked about the story of Elijah. He goes up on this mountain because he's throwing a pity party for himself. He goes up on this mountain, and he says, woe is me, and God goes, let me, let me do something for me, let me show you something. And he goes, he goes to the mountain, he throws all this fire at the mountain, and he says, that's not me. And then he shakes the earth. He says, that's not, not, that's not me either. What does he do next? He comes in a whisper. Because God is intimate. What God is doing in this passage is he's, he's actually, in, in, a, in some ways, he's almost making fun of all the other pagan gods who would show themselves big and powerful, but yet they're not. We have a dog, Zoe, who's a little sheep who She's about this big. And like all small dogs, she thinks she's tougher than she is. And so when somebody comes to the door, especially now with baby Jeremiah, she's extra protective, which is humorous. And she barks a lot because she wants to try to show herself bigger than that's what all these other pagan gods are doing. And God's like, no, 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 I can be fire. I can be an earthquake. But, but today I'm a whisper intimate because I care deeply. Habakkuk, he's not going to tell us about a particular uh, theophany that he himself experienced. Rather, he is going to call on the history found in Israel of God showing himself in particular in two moments, in two times. I think in creation, God shows himself to be powerful. And in the exodus, God shows him to be powerful. Shows himself. And he weaves these two things together through this theophany. But what we see to start this little passage is Habakkuk's recognition of what he has seen. Verse 2 it says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you. I've read the Old Testament, he says. He says, And your work, O Lord, do I. Fear? We talked about this a little bit Wednesday at our in our Bible study. And we've talked about that about this in the past. And, and throughout the whole of the Old Testament, there's this very interesting reoccurring idea that when we encounter God, we tremble and quake in fear. And a lot of times as New Testament believers, we we we, we, we smooth this out a little bit. And especially after studying this passage, I'm not sure if we're right. There's a passage in, in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia where they're talking about Aslan. And, and somebody asks a question uh, if we should be afraid of this lion. And the response is, of course, he's not a tame lion. God is not a tame lion. And sometimes, because of the intimacy we have with God through Christ Jesus, we think that we don't need to tremble in fear at the magnificence of our God. 
perhaps we should change our attitude. This is exactly what Habakkuk prays for because he realizes that at the current moment when he's speaking, probably before Babylon conquers Jerusalem, and the people of Judah are still thinking, we're doing okay, we're going to be all right, we have an army to fight, God has never abandoned us before, and God's going, I'm going to abandon you because you're sinning against me, loudly through the prophets, and yet they don't listen. And so Habakkuk, he's like, they're going to need to hear something in a moment after this destruction. He turns to the Lord, and he knows the only person that can truly rescue the people is the Lord. And so he says, in the midst of the years, the years of exile, revive it. Revive the knowledge of who you are, God, to the people who have forgotten you. And then he repeats himself in very typical Hebrew poetry fashion. He says, in the midst of the years, literally a a repetition of the exact same words, make it known, revive it, make it known. And then he says something very interesting. In the third repetition, that doesn't look as much like a repetition, he says, in wrath, remember mercy. The Babylonian exile for the people of Israel was God pouring out his wrath on the people of Israel. And Habakkuk says, while this is happening, be merciful. The mercy that he is speaking of is the knowledge of God being revived and made known to the people while in exile. It's not redemption. It's not don't take them to exile. It's not don't allow the punishment to happen, which is so often what we say to God whenever we deserve punishment or whenever we're going through hard times. We say, no, God, don't do this to me. I don't deserve it. Yes, we do, always. Rather, the mercy is the knowledge of God, which Habakkuk is going to do a pretty splendid job of showing us through the next few verses. I've said this in the past, but there are times whenever we come to passages of Scripture where our puniness becomes abundantly evident, becomes abundantly evident that we can do no justice to what's trying to be said. He says, God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Perrin, Selah. This is a directive. God is on the move. We'll see it again when he gets to verse 7. He says, I saw the tents of cushion in affliction, and the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. That's the same thing. God is on the move. The second part of verse 3 here. He says his splendor covered the heavens. The earth was full of his praise. I think this is creation. Go forward into verse 4. Jeff, can you take control? I don't think my controller is working. It says his brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hands, and there he veiled his power. 
God shows himself in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 to be mighty. Zane and I, we've been building Legos recently. He's just been on this kick with Legos. and Especially this last week, he, he really wanted to build Legos. And I love playing Legos. I do. And to build a big Lego set is an achievement, even as a 30-year-old man. Zane has a few little Lego sets that he can build all by himself, but, but he has a couple of them that are bigger. He's got this one, this one dragon that's Ninjago dragon. It's got like 500 pieces, and it takes me and him about two hours to build. And he loves to then tear it apart and build it again. He would literally do it for eight hours a day, and I can't quite, my brain starts to melt. But when you finish this, this thing, it's so awesome. Because, and, and Lego does a great job at, at making amazing details with blocks. It's crazy. And when you finish it, you're like, oh, sweet. This is Awesome. When you create something, and I'm not even creating it, I'm just building it off of a plan. When you create something, you go, "Woo, that's pretty great. But then you realize how little you've actually done. You know what God does in creation? He goes, he goes let there be light. Boom! There's light. He speaks and it comes into, into existence. Genesis 2, he says, he, he breathes the breath of life into Adam and Eve. It's stunning to think about how amazing it is that the God of the universe simply thought and spoke this amazing and crazy creation. But it's even more shocking, really, when you think about it, at what is being said the challenges to the culture that are happening in Genesis chapter 1 in particular, when it says God says, let there be light, and there is, and then He separates light from darkness. Darkness is a deity in the ancient world. God says, you don't have dominion anymore. He says, you go over there, sit, stay, and what happens? It does. Let there be an expanse, day two. Water separated from waters. Water is chaos in the ancient world. The, the, the Babylonians called them yom. And God says, back up. You can only go here and here. And then He makes land and He, he pushes the seas back and He says, this is your boundary. Sit, stay. And you know what yom does? He sits and He stays because God is almighty and powerful. We're only to verse 5. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. Wait a moment. That doesn't sound as good. In Genesis or in, in, in Exodus, Moses he's speaking to the burning bush. And he, he he's talking to the burning bush, and the burning bush is like, hey, here's here's the thing, God. He's like, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go to Pharaoh, the most powerful man on earth. And you're going to tell him, let my people go. Moses is like, that's the most absurd thing I've ever heard in my life. That the most powerful man on earth is just going to let millions of, of free laborers leave. And, and the Lord's like, you're right. He's not going to. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to send some plagues. 
And through these plagues, I am going to show myself, not only to Egypt, but to the whole world. The whole world will know me. You know, it's amazing. Forty years later, when the people of Israel come and, and they cross over to Jericho, the people of Jericho still remember the plagues of God in Egypt. Pestilence goes before God. Plague goes behind him. Power and might is what is total and complete control of all creation is in God's hands. If you're an important person, you typically don't go anywhere by yourself. President Trump doesn't go anywhere by himself. He's got the CIA always with him. Kings and, 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 and emperors, they never went anywhere by them. They always had a herd of people with them. And God's herd of people is complete and total power. You know what's also interesting? In the ancient world, like darkness, like water, like the sun and the moon that we'll talk about in a minute, Pestilence and plague are pagan gods under the control of, of Yahweh. They don't do anything without his permission. In verse 6, he says, He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the, the eternal mountains were scattered and the everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. Mount Sinai, God tells the people to, to stay back, to touch the mountain, and then God. He goes up in the mountain, and the mountain just shakes. Just shakes. What is the tallest mountain on earth? Tallest mountain on earth? Everest, right? It's in Hawaii. Mountains don't change, do they? Mountains don't go anywhere. They're so big and powerful that we could really echo the words of Habakkuk. They're everlasting. What does it say? It says God looked. He cast his eyes to the mountains, the immovable mountains, and the mountains shook and shattered and were destroyed. It's only God. Skip ahead to verse 8. This was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the seas when you rode on horses in your chariot of salvation? Rivers, wrath, horses and chariots. Reminds me of really only one thing. From Egypt. But in that story, God parts the waters. Again, showing his control over chaos. He parts the waters. He tells the people of Israel to walk across. You know what's happening right before this? The people were starting to question whether or not they should even be here. Maybe we should go back. You know why they didn't? The horses and chariots of the Egyptians were bearing down. They're like, we're going to take you out. interesting here. Similar to what we saw whenever God says, uh, look, um, I'm going to tell you what I'm doing, but you're not going to believe it in chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. I'm raising up the Chaldeans. God said, I, 
I controlled the Egyptians. You wouldn't have, you wouldn't have left. You would have stopped in your tracks because of fear. But I moved you forward. I am the God of salvation. You know what else is stunning about that story? The people of Israel don't lift one single finger. There's not one sword drawn. There's not one clash of a sword and a sword. There's no shields. There's no nothing. God uses the chaos of water to destroy the most powerful army on earth. He doesn't raise a weapon. That is shocking. Look at the next verse. You ready for this? You want to know why we should tremble and shake? It says, you stripped the sheath from your bow. You took your bow out and you grabbed for arrows. God has now armed himself. In the stories of the Old Testament, God again and again and again defeats army after army after army with literally no weapons. And now he is picked up the bow again. Look at the response. You split the earth with rivers. Verse 10, the mountains saw you and ride. The raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice and lifted up its hands on high. Praise God. Chaos. Praise God. Look, we won't, we won't stand against you, Lord. You're, you're it. Creation itself is is. Trembling at the presence of God with the weapon. Verse 11, the sun and the moon stood still in their place. The light of your arrows and as they sped at the, at the flash of your glittering spear. Verse 12, you marched through the earth in fury. You, you, threshed, the, you thrashed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying them bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of the warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter, rejoicing as if to devour the foreigners. You trampled the sea, chaos with horses, surging mighty waters. Again, like verse 8, where we see this twist of the events. God calls the army of Egypt his hand at work. He uses the same language here to describe what God is doing as he used in chapter 1 to describe what the, Chal the Chaldeans, the Babylonians were doing. He's like, this is me at work. In Jeremiah chapter 46 to 50, 52, Basically, the last part of, of Jeremiah's uh, prophecy. He, he has this long, uh, extended oracles against the nations, woes against all the enemies of God. He says, yes, you are going to be disciplined for your lack of trust and love 
for me by the Babylonians, but the Babylonians are also going to be my cup of wrath on the earth. All the people who have gone before the Babylonians who have, who have defiled and have oppressed and defeated the people of Israel, God finally enacted justice. The Philistines are destroyed, not by Israel, but by Babylon. Because God is at work. He has picked up His, his weaponry. Wickedness does not get to reign and rule on this earth. Now Babylon isn't without its justice and judgment. You'll notice that the Egyptians were not without their judgment. So how then do we respond? Habakkuk, he gets it. I hear and my, my body trembles. Terrifying. I said, I think two weeks ago, I don't want God to be my enemy. There is no more terrifying enemy. My lips quiver. Rottenness enters my bones. This decay is entering into me. My legs tremble beneath me. My knees are knocking together. This is terrifying. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon me and call me holy. This is a terrifying image of a terrifying God. But Habakkuk knows that he is not God's enemy. We should tremble and quake at the might of God, not because it is aimed at us, but because it is truly terrifying. Call it reverent, realizing just how mighty and magnificent God truly is. And we, like Habakkuk, we will quietly wait for justice to happen. It's as though the fig tree should not blossom for seven years, nor fruit be on the vine. The produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no fruit, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stall. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take my joy in the God of my salvation. And Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're told that they got to bow down to this image of the emperor, the king. Right, we, we're not allowed to do that. We've got to only bow to our God. So they don't. The king's like, why didn't you do that? The punishment is that you're thrown into the fiery furnace. You're, you're killed. They're like, we can't bow down to anybody but God. We're not allowed to bow down to you. So if you don't bow down to me, I'm going to throw you into this fiery furnace. And they said, look, we're never going to bow down to you. And if you throw us in the fiery furnace, God will rescue us. But it doesn't stop there. He says, they say, and if he doesn't, we'll still praise him. Because he is not just the God of the salvation of the moment. He is the God of salvation of all moments. This is the same attitude 
Though everything around me seems to be in destruction, though I am defeated, though my people are defeated, though everything around me is falling down and crashing down around me, I still have trust that this is the same God that will rescue me. You know what's amazing about this passage? Is that Habakkuk is saying this, and he doesn't know what Jesus is going to do. You know what's amazing about the Old Testament? It's always pointing us towards God. It's always pointing us towards, towards Christ. But what's amazing about Habakkuk's attitude here is he trusts that God is a God who saves. And what that means for us today is Jesus Christ on the cross. We don't sit in the same place that Habakkuk does. We have the answer. He was looking forward to it. We live in light of it. God is the God of our salvation. And so if all else fails, if everything else fails, we still can stand on the rock that is Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. I will rejoice in the Lord. God, the Lord, my strength. He makes my feet like the deer. He makes me tread on the high places. We can look at the history of Israel. We can look at the history of the church. And we can stand on the confidence that God is at work. is that God has accomplished the salvation in my life and in your life. He has done so through the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. He has paid the debt that you have accumulated by sinning against Him, turning against Him. He has done it. And He calls us Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Father, we know that you are mighty. I know that as we look at the history of the world, you have shown yourself so many times mighty, powerful, sovereign. Lord, we know that you are mighty, we know that you are powerful, we know that you are sovereign, and we see all of those attributes most fully known and recognized in the cross of Christ. In what seems like defeat and death, was the most true, the most wonderful display of your might and your power. To defeat death. To conquer sin. So that we all might say together, O death,
blood of your son, Jesus. Freely poured out. Draw us into your arms today. Those that already have felt the work of your salvation in their lives, we ask that you continue to do Continue to do Those that have not known you, we pray that you would convict their hearts today. That you would draw them into your arms. So that they might 